Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. He was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus was a man of prayer. You see it? If you just follow Luke's gospel through, you find Jesus at the very beginning praying when the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. You find him beginning his ministry with 40 days of fasting and prayer. You find him the night before he chose his 12 apostles praying all night long about that decision. You find him retreating often into the wilderness to pray. You find him saying to Peter, James, and John, come up with me on the mountain to pray when he was transfigured. You find him just before he asked Peter, who do men say that I am? That he was praying earnestly. And I can't help but think that he was praying, oh, Lord, open the eyes of Peter. Because he did say to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And you find him right here at the beginning of our text praying when the disciples come to him now and say, Teach us to pray. And so when I just read the Gospel of Luke and I see my Lord praying and praying and praying and know that he never once committed a sin that he had to confess for, he was a perfect man, I say, my how I should pray. My how I should be a man of prayer. If my Lord, who was himself God, in his humanity, looked for his guidance and his strength to his Father in heaven every day and sometimes prayed 40 days at a stretch all night long about everything he did, how much more should I pray? Don't you feel yourself coming to the beginning of 1991 just hearing what I've said in the last two minutes saying, oh, I've really got to do better. I must pray. And not only does he pray he teaches us to pray he calls us to pray like right here in this text and he promises us things about prayer and so there's just no doubt in my mind as i begin this message this morning what the will of god is for bethlehem baptist church the will of god for our church is that we be a people of prayer 
The will of God for that new sanctuary, as it comes to completion in the next three or four months, is that it be a house of prayer. That's plain. A house of prayer for the nations. And so, I don't know how you feel at the beginning of this message hearing this, but my prayer up till now and, and my prayer right now is that God will beget in you the same kind of desires he created in me as I worked on this message. And so let's just pray now and ask him to do it. Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would create prayer in the hearts of this people. That you would pour out a spirit of supplication that you would make the prayer warriors more powerful than ever. And that you would make the prayer less prayerful. Lord, may each one of us on the pilgrimage of prayer take a step forward this morning, not backward. Grant, O oh God, an anointing upon this message to the end that Jesus would be the teacher. And that we might be made new in our life of prayer. In his great name I pray. Amen. There are four instructions and four promises I want to unfold. Mainly from this text. Number one. Jesus teaches us that our praying should be God-centered. He teaches us to make our praying God-centered. Verse 2, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, notice that those are requests. Literally, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Now, my desire for you here is not so much that you pray with my words, but that you pray with Jesus' priorities. Jesus' priorities are that we pray for his kingdom to come. Jesus' priorities are that we pray first for the name of God to be lifted up, exalted, glorified, hallowed, treasured, loved, valued. That's what that word hallowed means. We all know the difference between two kinds of praying. Praying that is immature and basically uh, worldly and carnal. And praying that is mature and God-centered and saturated. Let me just pray a prayer and kind of model for you what I mean by prayer that is God-centered based here on verses 2 through 4. Father, we would say, Father... We long to see your name honored. We love the glory of your name. Oh, Father, work at Bethlehem. Work in my life and in my sons and in my family that we live for the name of God. That nothing be more important to us than that your name be valued in our hearts. Change my heart that I not love anything more than I love your holy name. That's petition number one. Lord, we want your kingdom to come. 
your kingly rule to establish itself more fully in my life so that competitors to the throne will be knocked off and I will have one sovereign and that this church will have Christ and you alone, Father, as our king and cause the gospel to spread and establish your kingdom in Albania. Establish your kingdom among every tribe and people, Lord. Do it. Do it for your glory. That's petition number two. Now, petition number three that Matthew has, Luke doesn't have. So we'll pass over that. And he just comes to our our physical needs. Father, you know my need. I get hungry. I get sleepy. I have desires in my life. I get lonely. Would you work to meet my needs today? I don't ask that anything be stored up for tomorrow. Not much anyway. I don't want to build bigger barns. I don't want to lay up for myself treasures on heaven. Just, Lord, keep meeting my needs and help me to trust you that I might with joy press on in the work you've called me to do for your glory. And Lord, next petition, I've sinned and I'm so sorry because I know sin is a falling short of your glory. It's a breach of covenant. It's a dishonor to your trustworthiness. I'm so sorry for my sin. Forgive my sin. Break me down that I not be angry and bitter toward other people, but let their sins against me go. And I ask now that you would just flood me with a sense of forgiveness and magnify your glorious grace in my life. And then the last petition is, I know that tomorrow and this afternoon I'll be tempted to sin. And I don't want to sin. Don't let me get entangled in sins that bring reproach upon your name. Free me from sin and my bent towards wandering away, Lord. Glorify yourself by leading me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Now, I say it again. I'm not asking you to pray with my words. I'm asking you to pray with Jesus' priorities. Okay? And I'm sure there are people sitting there right now. If I would ask you, you pray like that? Do you, do, you, do you get the feel that God's name and God's glory is woven through everything? God wants you to pray about broken cars. God wants you to pray about elbows that don't feel right. God wants you to pray about your finances. It's okay, alright? I'm not saying you don't pray about practical things. God just wants you to take all those things up into Him. And make them a prayer for His glory and His name. If they don't have anything to do with God's name, they're irrelevant. And you're not God-centered enough if you can't see it. What I'm asking is not that you forsake that kind of practical praying, but that you just sweep everything up into God. And that you pray for God's glory. By God's power. And in God's name. And if you say right now to yourself, good night, that is not me. I say, Jesus, thank you for this food and bless me today. Amen. That's the limit of my prayers. Now, here's what I think you should do, because I'm sure a lot of you feel that way. I think you should just right now in your heart pray the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Anybody who has grown in the maturity of their prayer has done so by praying about their praying. You get that? If you want to grow in your praying, pray about your praying. When Jesus says, pray, let your name be hallowed, he means 
Teach me to pray for the hallowing of your name the way that will get it done in my life. So that I hallow your name when I pray and when I live. You see? Help me right now. You should just be praying as I'm saying this. Help me right now to learn how to hallow your name in my praying about the hallowing of your name. Forgive me for not caring about your name. Forgive me for leading my life for money and things and prestige and family and church and not loving you and your name and your glory. The promise that underlies this first direction to pray with God-centeredness is Ezekiel 36.23. The Lord says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. I'll do it. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, here's the mystery. This is awesome. I love this. God says, and that's not the only place he says it, I am going to vindicate my name in this world. Every knee will bow and confess my son. I will Triumph. Now, come on, make it happen by your prayers. You see the connection? He says, I'm going to do it. Now, hallow my name. Pray that my name be hallowed. This is an awesome thing. God says, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to do it without the prayers of my people. I just think this elevates prayer to an absolutely stunning Position of authority and power in the world. God is committed for the sake of his own glory to triumph with his name. But he teaches us, pray, do it, do it, hallow your name. And so there's a great promise to sustain this first petition. It will be done. If you pray, hallowed be thy name, you can't fail. You can't fail. God's going to get it done. Direction number two in this text is that we should pray with a sense of security in the Father's love. Pray with a sense of security in the Father's love. Now, I get that from verse two in the word Father, where he says, when you pray, say, Father. God does not want you to feel precarious when you come into his presence. God does not want you to feel insecure or nervous when you come into his presence. He wants you to feel totally secure. I see that in the word father because the word father is unpacked for us in verses 11 to 13. Look at it. If you had a father around which you feel precarious, you must now ask God to take this vision of God's fatherhood and replace all of that image in your life. Let's read it. Ask God to do that. What father of you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? And if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, now just stop there a minute. This is a clear confession that fathers are imperfect. The best father in the world is evil. 
You got that? So don't don't think you're unusual if you had an imperfect father. There aren't any other kind. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Now, here's the most important three words. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, the point of those three words, how much more are this? Take the best father you've ever known or can imagine and put after it these three words. How much more ready? How much more eager? How much more able is our heavenly father to meet our needs than is the best earthly father? It's utterly crucial that we recognize this. Why does he talk this way? Because he means for us to feel secure as we come into God's presence. He does not want you to feel precarious. And this security is utterly important. None of us can prevail in prayer without a sense of security. If we think God is stonewalling us in prayer, we will not persevere in prayer. If we think he is angry with us in prayer, we will not be able to persevere in prayer. If we think he's neutral to us in prayer, we won't hang on. We'll have a little spurt and it'll fade. He must be eager for us to be there. He must be smiling on us as we're there or we will bail out. The only way we will prevail in prayer is if God is the kind of father described in these verses. He is more inclined than the best of fathers to meet our needs. And the promise, of course, is right there in verse 13. Number three, the third direction is this. Jesus teaches us to prevail. That's the key word. To prevail in prayer without doubting the father's love. What I mean by prevail is simply this. Um, Hang in there. Stick to your praying. Don't quit praying for a thing until you've got the answer or God says, don't pray for that anymore. That's what I mean by prevailing. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. Persevere. Persist. Now, right at this point, if you're in the text, you feel a tension. I feel a tension between the call to prevail and keep on praying and the call to feel secure and welcome. Feel the tension? Because if we're so secure and if God is so caring and if he's so kind and if he's so loving, better than the best father, why would we ever need to keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, keep on prevailing, keep on persisting, keep on hanging in there? Why wouldn't he just... Answer every need, just like that. You see the tension? Now, I didn't make up this tension. I wasn't the first person to put these two things back to back. Jesus did. So, not my fault. Jesus did it this way. So we better listen carefully and see if we can sort this out. Jesus is the one who told this awful story in verses 5 to 8 that none of us would ever thought of telling about prayer. It's an utterly unattractive vision of prayer. But let's tell it because Jesus taught it. He said there was a man. It it could be like David Livingston and me. Yesterday, uh, a man knocked on my front door and he stand there shivering. And he said, my car is out here on the road and it won't start. 
Could you jump me? Okay, so the man comes, and he's got a guest here who says, uh, have you got some food? It's the middle of the night. And the man says, no, I don't have any food. Um, I'll go to my neighbor and get some food. So I called David Livingston because I had no car. My wife had the car away. I couldn't help this guy. So I have a friend. Maybe he'll help him. So I go to David and say, David, there's this guy out there, and he's got a, a car that won't start. Can you? He's two doors down. Can you come over and help him? And David said, sure, which is unlike what this guy said. So that's the end of the comparison. But, <laughs> but suppose David had said, it's minus five degrees out there. I'm playing games with my kids. Not about to do that. Well, if you keep in tune with the text here, I would say, okay, I'm going to come over and knock on your door the rest of the afternoon. Clunk. And I just come over and start banging on his windows like this until he says, oh, get this guy out of here. All right. All right. That's the text. All right. That's the story. Middle of the night, my children are in bed with me. If I get up, I wake them up. The door's locked. Come on, wait till the morning. But he keeps on knocking, and the text says, because of his importunity, that he just keeps on knocking. If he won't do it because of his friendship, he'll do it to get him off his back. Not an attractive vision of prayer, in my mind, at all. And yet Jesus goes on in verse 9 and uh, draws a lesson from it. And this is the lesson. He says, Ask. And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And there are three things in that statement that show that the point is pressing in on God, prevailing, persisting. The first thing is the tense of these verbs. Present tense in the Greek means continuous action. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. The second thing is that there are three of them, three present tense verbs to pile it up. And then he repeats them again in verse 10, I believe it is. And the third thing is that there's a progression in these three words, isn't there? Picture yourself now in the parable. Ask, keep on asking means, uh, what house shall I go to? Uh, okay, I'll go to my friend's house down the street. Seeking. You turn an asking now into action. You start moving down the street until you get to the house. Knocking. Boom, boom, boom. You see the progression? Where's the house? Seek the house. Knock on the house. There's movement. There's a pressing in on God here. That's the point. And Jesus wants us to be like that. That's the part of the parable he pulls out and says, this is exemplary. The knocking, the asking, the seeking is the way to be with God. But then he drops this grouchy friend entirely and he shifts over. To talk about a father who's gracious and more ready to give than the best father on earth. So what's the point of this section? Yes, sometimes God ordains that we receive what we need after long prevailing in prayer. But no, it's not because he is out of sorts or unable, or disinclined, or angry. And we ask then, well, why? <laughs> why teach prevailing if you're so ready to give? And the text doesn't tell us. Well, maybe the text does tell us. At least I thought of saying to you, the text doesn't tell us. Let's just trust him. But I think the text says something that will help. Verse 11 
says that a good father will not give his son a serpent if he asks for a fish. Now, what's the point of that? Won't give him a snake, a rattlesnake, if he asks for fish. Well, the point is, good fathers give kids what they need. Not hurtful things. They give them what they need. You can always count on God to give you what you need. That's good for you. And I said, now, is that an answer, maybe? I think it is. Why does God then ordain that we prevail days, weeks, months, years, decades? One of our members came to me recently and said, 29 years, and she prayed to receive Jesus last week. 29 years I prayed. Why? My answer is, it's good for us. The prevailing is good for us. And I just ask you, think about your life. Think about the Christians you know best. Who are the Christians most strong and most mature that you know? Are they the hit and miss prayers? Or are they the prevailing prayers? God does something to us through prevailing. God gives fish. God gives bread. When we prevail, that's not a scorpion. That's not a snake. That's not a stone. When he gives us to prevail in prayer, mighty things are in the offing when we prevail in prayer. The promise undergirding the call to prevail is verse 10. Everyone who goes on asking receives. He who goes on seeking finds to him who goes on knocking. It will be opened. Now, I close with this final direction. I close the year. I close the sermon. I close my heartbeat for 1990. And if I understand verse 13, what our heartbeat should be for 1991. The fourth direction is this. Jesus teaches that the prevailing of our prayer should be a prevailing for the Holy Spirit. The prevailing of your prayer should be a prevailing for the Holy Spirit. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who go on asking him? The Holy Spirit. It's no accidents, brother and sister, that uh, brothers and sisters, that The author of this book told us in chapter 3, verse 21, that it was while Jesus was praying that the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. Get the connection? While he was praying the Holy Spirit. It's no accident that the author of this book in the second chapter and the first chapter of the book of Acts said that Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit came as the climax of a 10-day prayer vigil. It's no accident in chapter 4 of the book of Acts that this same author tells us that the place in which they were gathered and were praying was shaken and the Holy Spirit filled them all. That's no accident because this text teaches that the pathway to power in and by the Holy Spirit is prevailing prayer. And therefore, the fourth point is very simple. When we prevail, let us prevail for the Holy Spirit for more of his power, for more of his gifts, 
for more fullness of his blessing. And if you need encouragement in that, if you're like me, that after you've prayed year after year for an extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the reviving of the church and the moving of God upon the conference and upon the nation and upon the world, and it seems to tarry and you want to give up, encourage yourself with this. The prevailing is a fish and not a snake. The prevailing is bread and not a stone. God is at work doing more in your prevailing in your life than you can ever imagine. I have seen it in many of you. I have seen it in my own life. There is no one who has prevailed and gone astray by prevailing. No one has gotten shallow by prevailing. No one has missed God's will by prevailing. No one has become silly or made sin in their life by prevailing. Only growth and strength and depth and power happen by prevailing. And you know why? Because prevailing is a work of God's spirit within. Isn't this plain now at the end of 1990? I've said this a dozen times this year to try to clarify our emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And let me say it one last time. When a person cries out, oh, God, pour out your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, baptize the church afresh in the Holy Spirit. Oh, God, grant that there be gifts of the Holy Spirit in your church. Oh, God, revive your church by your Holy Spirit. That prayer is coming from no one else but the Holy Spirit who dwells within. Is that plain? I sometimes fear that every time I use the word, come Holy Spirit, people are computing no Holy Spirit within. I've heard people mock that phrase. Why pray for him to come if he's already there? That's so shallow. It's so naive. It's so unbiblical. When we cry, come, it's because he's here mightily crying out and interceding for us with groans. That his fullness might be realized in the church. Oh, that that might make sense to you and become part of your life. And so I conclude. Let us pray this week with God centered praying. Let us pray this week, brothers and sisters, with a sense of sweet, sweet security that we have a father in heaven better and more ready and eager to give us what we need than the best human father we've ever imagined or known. And let us prevail without losing heart in his love and let us prevail for the spirit from the spirit. And it may be. That even at the end of this service now, you'd want to take two, three, five minutes to join one of the prayer teams at the front here as we close and ask God's blessing on your life. Let's stand for closing prayer.